The scripture reading this morning from the Word of our God is Colossians 3, 9 through 11. It can be found on page 984 in your Black Pew Bible. Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Father, thank you. Thank you for the work that you are already doing. You've been at work before any of us woke up this morning. You've been at work always. You don't sleep. You're not caught off guard. You're not surprised. And um, we're not beyond your reach. Like I know all of us are coming into this room from different weeks and different situations. Some of us are um, really happy and life is going really well and others of us are reeling and hurting. Um, In Jesus, we believe that you have a word for all of us, that your grace is for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves today. Um, So Spirit of God, um, come, please, fill this room Fill our hearts, you're already here, so will you open our eyes and will you teach us? Will you make us more like Jesus? I pray all of this in your name, amen. Hey, so a few weeks ago, uh, there was a blog post that kind of went viral in a few social media circles that I was on. It was written by a pastor who was resigning from his church after 10 years of being in leadership there. Uh, And something about it kind of resonated, caught a lot of attention from different people, both pastors and non-pastors. And he, in it, he was explaining that he was just worn out. He was exhausted. He had spent 10 years trying really hard to lead the church, to preach compelling sermons every single week, uh, to counsel people, to help people uh, become more, to realize their potential. And he said that after 10 years of that, he was just exhausted. He was shot. He didn't have anything else to give. And so he was choosing to step down and step back and step out. There was this quote that he gave um, in, in, in the blog post. He said that when he started out as a pastor, quote, I thought the reason, I thought the reason why this group of people gathered every Sunday was to explore deep questions about life and to push ourselves to become better humans. But over time, he realized or concluded or, or, or thought that not as many people were interested in that as he thought. And so all of his efforts to um, become better, to change, were just getting frustrated and he was tired and he just wanted to go somewhere else and maybe it would work somewhere else. And I wonder if some of you in here feel the same way. You're wondering like, man, why, why do we come together every single, every single Sunday? Like, what are, we, what are we trying to do here? And are you a little bit worn out and exhausted or thought that maybe things would be better or easier or you'd be a little bit further along than you are right now? Because this pastor isn't the only one who has left the church. Uh, 40 million people in the United States have left the church in the last 25 years. That's more than 10% of the population. And they've left for a lot of different reasons. Life is busy. Uh, things are maybe more important 
church faith doesn't have the same place in their life as it used to. But as I read those stats, and as I read the blog post explaining why people are done, I, I can't help but wonder if our assumptions about what all of this is about are off. Is this just a program for personal improvement, for figuring out how we become more like God, or is there something more for us here? So we, we, we took a break from the book of Colossians for the last four weeks uh, to kind of uh, re, try to reset our expectations for where we are as a church, where we're going. And now we're jumping back into this book of Colossians that we've been in for a few months. We have a few more weeks of it. Um, we're going to go through it uh, for the fall before we pick up Advent. Um, and the message of Colossians, if you have not been here if, uh, if it, or if you just need a refresher, is the supremacy of Jesus in absolutely everything. Jesus is at the center of every single statement, every single question, every single command. Everything in Colossians is about Jesus. Colossae, the city that uh, the book of Colossians was written to, the church in Colossae was a small, out-of-the-way, struggling city in the ancient world, but the church there was young, vibrant, and facing a lot of struggles. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of disagreement or debate about what it meant to live a life of fullness. How do we experience the fullness of God in our lives? How do we become more like who God made us to be? And in this confusion, there were teachers coming in and saying, no, hey, the way that you really need to better yourself, the way that you really need to take the next step is by adopting strict religious practices. Don't eat, don't sleep, like crucify all the weakness in your body and then when that happens, then you're going to experience fullness. Or maybe you just need to embrace a more spiritual view of the world or pursue a deeper knowledge so that you can push yourself to become a better human. And throughout the letter, Paul keeps reminding this church and us that we have already all the fullness that we need in Christ. The work has already been done. Jesus has already done everything. There isn't anything that we can do to add to the glory of Jesus and experiencing fullness in life is less a matter of right technique or practice and more a matter of putting on your new self in Christ, of walking in what Jesus has already done for us. There's a church in Overland Park uh, that whenever I drive past it, there's this um, like massive uh, part of a Bible verse on the wall outside. And it says, um, uh, be my people and I will be your God. It's from the book of Exodus. Uh, and every time I see that, I'm like, man, you left off the most important part. Because when, when you say, hey, be my people and I will be your God, that's a command. If you want me to be your God, then you should be my people. But in the Bible, it says, hey, you will be my people, and I will be your God. It's a promise. It's not something that you have to achieve. It's God saying, hey, I've taken you. I've called you. You belong to me. So now live like that. Act like that. You don't have to achieve that. All you have to do is step into the fullness of what God in Jesus Christ has already done. But the question is, of course, what does that mean? How do we do that? And why have I done all this throat clearing about pastors and people leaving the church? The reason is uh, we're at a point right now 
in Colossians where there are a lot of commands. Do this, don't do that, act this way, don't act that way. And it can be really tempting when we are in really practical um, passages like this to think that this is what we need to do so that we can actually enter into the life that God has made for us. And we can subtly pervert the gospel of redemption in Jesus, the invitation to a new way of being, to a legalism of moral or personal betterment. And that second path is exhausting. There's no life in it. So don't, don't get me wrong. I think all of our lives would be better if we did the things that the Bible is calling us to do and not to do in this passage. But it's really, really important for us at the offset to make sure that we have the, the order right. So if we go through these next few sermons where we are gonna be talking about really practical things, if we go through them thinking, hey, how do I take this and push myself to be a better version of myself, then all we're gonna do has fallen to the trap of, 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 of thinking um, that I have to do something better. I have to do something better. I have to be more. I messed up again. I, I shouldn't have done that. I should be more. And it's that trap that actually prompted Paul to write this letter in the first place. As we talk about how our actions should be different because of Jesus, our job isn't to figure out how do we become better people. Instead, our job is to figure out what does it mean that in Christ, we have put off the old self and we've put on a new self. That's right there in verse um, 9 and 10, if you missed it. Um, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Our challenge is to figure out what does that mean? What does it mean to put off the old self? What does it mean to put off its practices? And what does it mean to live fully into this new life in Jesus? So what I wanna to do today is look at what does it mean to put on the new self? What does it mean to experience this new life in Jesus? And then we're gonna look at two implications that that has for our relationships and our common life together. So uh, let's look first at what these verses tell us about our new self in Christ. Verses nine through 10. I know I just read them, but I'm going to read them again. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So one of the things that I really love about Paul is how he weaves all these common threads together um, in, in his writings. All throughout Colossians, we've already seen how Jesus changes absolutely everything in our lives. He's rescued us from darkness and brought us into his kingdom. He's given us forgiveness and redemption. That's chapter one, 13 through 14. He's reconciled us and overcome our hostility and evil. That's chapter one, verses 21 and 22. Through baptism, he's raised us to new resurrection life. He's canceled all the debts that our sin against God had accumulated. That's chapter two. And this new life, Paul says, is being kept safe in heaven with Jesus. And so the way that we live now should look like all of that that he's already said is actually true. That's the beginning of chapter three. And so all of that, all of these statements about what Jesus has done, 
what God through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection has done, all of that comes before Paul starts giving us any commandments about how we're supposed to act or behave or live. Another way of saying that is that theology comes before ethics or what God does comes before what we do. And I think that what Paul is saying in these verses is, is one of the most um, important things that we can learn about following Jesus. Christians do not change their behavior so that we can belong to the family of God. We don't. We don't try to change to become better or to experience more fullness. We, 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 um, we already belong to God. We already belong to his family. So therefore, because we belong to him, we work to align our actions with our identity. We belong to Jesus. We don't belong to darkness or evil anymore. In Christ, God our Father has given us a new status, a new identity, or a new self, as Paul says in verse 10. Think about it this way. Uh, we all love rags to riches stories, right? Um, these stories of someone who grew up in extreme poverty, uh, oppression, being overlooked, and then somehow magically was uh, elevated to this spot of uh, prominence, wealth, and position, uh, and they all of a sudden have everything that they ever thought that they wanted without having to do anything uh, to, to earn it. And there's always a learning curve, right? If you grow up uh, on the street or if you grow up poor and all of a sudden you have all of these uh, different resources, this new status, these new relational circles, you don't just know how to act right away when you, when you go into that. Um, you, you have to learn. You have to learn what does it mean to, that I don't actually have to fight for my place anymore. I, I belong here. And so uh, when we see what Paul is saying in the Colossians, it's something like that. He's saying, hey, you, you used to belong in the gutter. You belonged in darkness. You did not have a single thing to your name, but now in Christ, he has brought you out of there and placed you in his family, placed you in his home, and all the resources that belong to him now belong to you. And it takes us time to figure out what does that mean? Like, how do we live like that's true? How, how, how do we put off the old habits that we accumulated when we were trying to just live for ourselves or secure our own spot? How do we live in trust and obedience before the God who has given us everything. Do you notice what, why Paul tells us not to lie to each other? Don't lie to each other. He says, not because it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. You shouldn't lie to each other. But he's saying, hey, don't lie to each other because you've already put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self. You are not who you used to be. You're different. You have been changed deeply, objectively. There's this um, theological thread throughout the New Testament uh, of Jesus Christ as the new Adam. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that in Genesis, God creates the world, sets up this uh, place for flourishing, a place where his glory can um, be shared everywhere throughout all of creation. And then he creates a man, Adam, to image his presence, to represent him in the world. Adam's job is to go out and to spread the glory of God everywhere through all of creation. So he's given a task to do. He's given a vocation. Adam, you image me in the world. Wherever you go, you bring my kingdom, you bring my life, you bring my beauty. And as you do that, the world uh, was designed to grow gradually in the knowledge and growth and glory of God. 
And if we're also familiar with our Bibles, we know that Adam failed to do that. Um, instead of imaging God in the world, going out, um, living as his representative, he chose to seize control and power for himself. He chose to go his own way. He thought that uh, what God had given him was not enough. And because of that, everything and everyone that has come after him dies and lives in a world that is fractured and broken and full of chaos. Things fall apart. Things do not gradually, slowly get better. And so the reason that we're all in the predicament that we're in, the reason that your life is hard is because we're an Adam. We're born in a world that lives under a curse because of Adam. But God was not content to leave us in that state. And so he comes himself in Jesus and takes a life that's marked by death, sin, and separation and brings a new kingdom, a new way of being. So Jesus is a new man. He is a new beginning. When Jesus comes, he's not just making a way for you to go to heaven when you die. He's actually launching new creation. This is God saying, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to undo everything that has been broken. Everything that has, been, that has fallen apart is going to be restored, redeemed, and made new in this Jesus, in this new Adam. So now in Colossians, we, we, we see that there's a new man. There's a new self. There's a new way of being in the world. Where Adam failed, Jesus was faithful. Adam died and proved powerless to save his family, but Jesus defeats death and kills slavery that we're all born into. Everyone born in Adam lives under the power of sin and death, and everyone who is in Jesus lives in the power of the spirit and resurrection life. So when Paul reminds us that we've put on this new self that's being renewed in the image of its creator, he's reminding us that something deeper and bigger than your individual salvation is at play here. When you were saved, you were caught up into this movement of new creation. You were objectively made new. You're different. In Christ, you are different. And that's why Paul is so concerned to talk about our behavior. We don't belong to darkness anymore. We have a new allegiance, a new identity, and a new purpose to live out as the people of God. So wherever we find ourselves in the world, um, we are different. We are new. And if all that's true, if our old self has died, then why in the world would we choose to live like it's still alive and well? That's the message of the gospel. The message of Christianity is that your old self is dead. You died with Jesus, and a new life, a new self, a new way of being is yours. And that reality grounds everything else in this passage. And so the question becomes not, how do I push myself to become a better human? But instead, if I've already put on the new self, if all of that's true, if I've been made new in Jesus, then why do I still struggle so much? Like, what is, why does it feel like the old self is really strong? If, I've, if I already put it off in all, in, in all of its practices, um, then why do, I, like, why do I still experience its power? Why do I still experience brokenness in the world? Why do I still lie? Why do I still raise up walls? That's, that's, that's the question. That's the thing that Paul is going to address in, in all this. So let's, let's talk for a few minutes about what does it mean to grow into the new self? 
Because Christians have struggled for thousands of years to understand how growing, growing in Jesus works. The theological word for this is sanctification or the process of becoming more like Jesus in every part of our life. And what we have to realize is that even though we have been freed from the old way of living in Adam, we still live in a world that's marked by sin and death. The old self whispers, <laughs> sometimes it yells really loudly. It pulls us back into the old way of thinking. And if we listen to its voice, we begin to forget who we are and what God has done. And so the entire reason Paul writes this letter was because he sensed that the Colossians were drifting away from this foundation of new life in Jesus. How's that possible? Think about it through the lens of the Lion King. So, <laughs> Disney movie, right? It's great. You have Simba, grows up, son of the king, pride rock, um, and then Mufasa dies. I assume all of you have seen it, so I'm just gonna, you know, summarize and go fast forward, you know. Um, so, Mufasa dies, Simba runs away, he's just living his Hakuna Matata life with Timon and Pumbaa, it's all great. But meanwhile, since he's gone, pride rock is just falling into darkness. The hyenas are running the show. Scar is an awful king. He, he's oppressing this kingdom that was the circle of life. It's beautiful, all that, yeah, whatever. Um, so when Simba comes to his senses, what happens? He's there, he's just like eating worms or whatever. And then Mufasa shows up one night. Um, every, time I, every time I try to retell something, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Um, who made this movie? The point is really good. So when, when, Muf, when Mufasa shows up, and call Simba out. What does he do? He doesn't say, hey man, listen, you have to perform your way back into, uh, back into doing anything. You've made a train wreck of your life. Like you have to do something to make this right. What, what he does instead is saying, hey Simba, you've forgotten who you are. You are more than who you have become. And so the answer to overcome Simba's apathy, Simba's laziness, that is wreaking havoc back in Pride Rock, is not just through action. It's, hey, you have to remember who you are. You're my son. You're the king. You belong to me. And now there's a real disnified like version of self-achievement in that. It's like, oh no, you just don't hit, you have to realize who you are, like the uh, whatever, the inherent goodness inside of you. Then the, like, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. But what he's doing in these verses is exactly what Mufasa is doing in in, when he's talking to Simba. He's saying, hey, if you find yourself falling back into darkness, if you find yourself living in a way where the old self feels really strong, the answer answer is to remember who you are. You're more than you have become. You belong to the king. He's made you his own. He loves you. He's claimed you for himself. And that, that knowledge grounds absolutely everything. Do you, do you see what, 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 what Paul says? How, how, are, how is this new self? How does it grow? It, it grows through knowledge. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its, of its creator. As we remember, as we grow in knowledge of what God has done and who we are, we change. Things are different. The old way of living starts to gradually fall away as we hear the voice of God more clearly. 
And, and, and knowledge, knowledge can mean a lot of things, right? Um, what I don't, I don't think what this passage is saying is that, hey, if you could just explain like really, really clearly and understand really, really clearly um, all the atonement theories that are out there, then you're, gonna be, then you're gonna be good. Like there is a knowledge that is two plus two equals four. I know the facts, I know the things. That kind of knowledge is really good, but it can't change you. There's another kind of knowledge that has to do way more with, oh yeah, I know I'm loved by that person. How do you know that you're loved by a person? How do you know? You, you, you know by living in deep relationship with them, by walking with them, by seeing the way that they interact with you, by seeing the way that they um, interact with the world around them. And as you grow in knowledge of this person, you fall into new habits, patterns, loves. And I think the same thing is true with God. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Being renewed in the knowledge of your creator, yes, does have to do with you should know about who God is. You should know about what he has done. But there is a personal knowledge of walking with him, hearing his voice, going after him, that actually does change us from the inside out. There is a nearness to Jesus that is grounded in truth that leads us to maturity. And God made us as beings that are not microwavable. You can't microwave a person to get a finished product. Like that's, that's not how he made us. We grow. We're born as babies and we have to develop strength and skills. And I think that the Christian life is the same way. The way that we grow into Christ takes time. It takes nearness. It takes time in his word, listening to his voice. It takes communing with him through prayer. It takes proximity to his people which is what we're doing here today. As we grow in this knowledge, we slowly, gradually become more like him. So that's the ground of everything that we're gonna be talking about for over the next few weeks. In Christ, you are not who you were. You have been made new. That's an objective reality. If you are in Christ, you have been made new. A new way of living is open to you. So if that's true, Here's the way that we live. Here are the new family rules. So let's, let's finish our sermon by talking about what does it look like when we live with Christ? What is life like when Christ is all and in all, like verse 11 says? There are two implications that we see in this passage for how we live if this is true. Remember, uh, our passage starts out with a really clear command. Don't lie to one another. That's the, at the end of a, another long list of uh, things that we are to avoid now that we belong to the kingdom of God. We don't belong to the kingdom of darkness anymore. Um, and after spending so much time talking about uh, the old self, new self, we, sh we should understand why we shouldn't lie to one another. Because lying is the maybe most obvious example about living in the old self. Listen to how N.T. Wright makes this connection. The old self is itself out of shape. The old self is twisted, it's corrupted, it is a lie. And it tends to twist everything else around it. People by manipulation or, or anger, twist facts by lying to make it fit with its own distortions. 
And when that happens, when we live out of the old self, when we twist things around us to make it conform to our reality or our preferences, even if it's not true, then that is just a picture of living with the old self. And it's so easy to do, right? It is so easy to start walking down a road of telling half-truths because we're afraid of what it's going to do to the other person if I'm fully honest, or we're proud and we don't want people to see our weakness and our failure and our sin. And before you know it, if you're living with a person who is not honest to you, like you start to question everything. Has this actually been true? Remember, this is written to a church. This isn't just written to uh, an individual. Think about what that does to a community of people. When like the, the, the very foundation that we're supposed to be standing on suddenly is called into question. Don't lie to each other because it belongs to the old way. There's a new way of being in Christ that is full of truth and beauty and honesty. Listen to what Pastor Sam Storms uh, says about this. Virtually everything else we do to and against one another can be healed. But deliberate, conscious, premeditated deception is perhaps the most devastating thing of all. Something truly sacred is shattered when we lie to one another. The confidence we have in another person so essential for life in the body of Christ cannot be easily repaired. So friends, if we are in Christ, we tell the truth to each other. We're truth tellers. Jesus has already told the truth about us. Jesus has already spoken a better word over us. And so I know it feels really scary, to be honest. Like we don't know what it's gonna do to our relationships. We don't know how it's going to impact the way that we live with other people. We we don't know if they're still gonna wanna be around us. But the, the, the price of deception just grows and grows and grows and grows and eventually it is going to come due. But if we belong to Jesus, we can be honest with each other because he's already at work filling all of us with his spirit. And when we tell the truth, we're actually aligning ourselves with the work that God is already doing. God is honest. God is true. God um, makes crooked things straight. And when we are honest with each other, we're actually participating in doing the kingdom work of God that he is already at work doing. And what he's doing is tearing down walls of hostility, hatred, and lies between people. That's the second implication. That's what we see in verse 11. Paul finishes this little section by saying, here, where is here? Here is in the church. Here is in the new people of God, in the, in the, in the group of people who are being renewed in the image of God. Here, in that place, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. We could probably preach, you know, a whole series of sermons just on this verse. What the gospel does, what the power of God does is tear down dividing walls between people. Um, I I think it's really easy for us uh, to comprehend how scandalous this verse would have been because these people hated each other. And the entire world and society that they lived in was kind of structured on making sure that these people groups 
stayed in conflict, stayed in tension, stayed separate from one another. Um, Greek and Jew. This is, this is calling out Jewish, Jewish, uh, Jewish people because there was a hard line of separation between Gentiles, who were the pagans, who were the godless ones, and the Jewish people who had the gifts of God. Uh, they're the ones that God chose. And what Paul is saying is that like, hey, in Christ, the dividing wall between us and them has been torn down. He's making a new man. He's making a new humanity where Christ is all and in all. If you were a Greek person, you had crazy amounts of privilege. You had status, you had opportunities for economic growth and advancement and trade that other people didn't have. And Paul is saying, hey, in the church, that doesn't matter. Christ is all and in all. Barbarians, Scythians, which is just the words that Greek people used for the people who lived out there, the tribal people, the really unsophisticated country folk. Paul's saying, hey, they belong too. In the kingdom of God, Christ is all and in all. Slaves and free. The entire economic structure of the ancient world was built on this distinction. And Paul is saying, hey, in the church, Christ is all and in all. Those distinctions do not matter. Yeah, they still exist. Paul isn't saying, hey, you should just uh, become some um, vague, homogenous group of people. No, no, like distinctions really still exist. Culture still really exists. But in the church, they don't matter. They don't separate. Walls are torn down through the gospel. In Christ, hostility and separation dies because... Jesus is making a new humanity, a new self, a new group of selves who are being renewed in the image of God and doing what God created humans to do in the first place. And one of the things I really want for us here, um, like what would that look like if that was true? I, I just think about like, you know, we, we, I, I'm sure we could all point to the really big divisions in our country, right? We have really big racial divisions, political divisions. It's hard for us to um, love each other well. But there are divisions in Johnson County all over the place, all over the place. I grew up in Peculiar, which is Redneck Town in Cass County on the Missouri side. We did not like Johnson County people. Like every time I came over here, I was like, yeah, I don't belong. Uh, and I judged all of the wealthy Johnson County people like crazy. I was like, ah, you know, they live in a fairy tale. They live in a bubble. Like, you know, we get our pizza from Casey's in Peculiar. <laughs> and there, there are ways that you can judge people, put them into categories and put them into boxes that are really silly. We do it economically. All oh, those people make way more than me. I don't want to be around them. Those people make way less than me. I don't want to be around them. That person is awkward. I would just rather not have to deal with that. That person lives south of 435. I live north of 435. Like, it's silly, but we do this, we do this all over the place, and it's really subtle, but it really does corrode relationships. And the, it does the opposite of what this verse talks about. When the power of the gospel comes, it brings together people who are not alike. It helps us to love people who are unlovable and different. What would it look like if we were the kind of church when 
that kind of person comes in where you just know, all right, this is going to be a handful. What if instead of trying to shuffle them off to somewhere else, we're like, oh no, this is an opportunity to show the gospel, to show that Jesus Christ has torn down every dividing wall of hostility. And here in this place, we don't have to maintain in, like anything. Christ is all and in all. And Christ has made me his own. Christ has made me new. Christ has transferred me out of darkness. He's forgiven me so I can forgive this other person also. What if our community reflected this group of different people with different practices and loves and traditions? And we show, no, yeah, we are different, but Christ is all and in all here. When I, when I read these verses and I see this picture of a reconciled humanity, like I, I just, I go back uh, to the pastor who resigned and the, the blog post that I read because he was tired and worn out, I, th- I think from trying to achieve this picture of what humanity could look like. And I, and I wanna say to him, like, friend, the work is already done. The work is already done. You do not have to make this happen because you can't. We've been trying to for a really, really long time. What we can do is join in the work that Jesus has already done by faith, trust. Oh no, he, he's gone before us. He's done all the work. I can participate in what he's doing here. I can tell the truth. I can put my preferences to death. I can forgive people. I can live in this new reconciled humanity because God in Jesus Christ has reconciled me to himself already. So I think a lot of us come into this room probably feeling exhausted. I don't really know exactly what's going on in most of your lives, Um, but I'm tired. I assume that you're probably tired also. I assume that you want more. My word for you today is take Jesus. In this place, Christ is all and in all. And he promised that he's going to keep on filling the world with his glory. He's not done. So if you're frustrated, if you're tired, if you're worn out, come to Jesus. Take all of him. Remember who you are. You're more than you've become. And by that grace, move towards living in the light living like a reconciled, redeemed son and daughter of God who belongs to this family where Christ is already all in all and one day will be all in all in all the world. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've already done all the work. Uh, and will you help us? Like there, there are so many tensions that even I feel um, a- after that of like, how does that work? How do we, how do, we do that? How, how, like the, things don't fit. My life doesn't look like uh, I, th- I think it should. God, we need you. We need your grace. We need your spirit. We need your wisdom to come and fill us up. We need your voice to remind us who we are. So God, will you help us? Will you help all of us to put off the old self? And God, if, if there are people in this room right now who... Um, like, aren't Christians, they don't, they don't believe in you. God, will you speak to them uh, right now? Will you speak love and compassion? Will you remind them of who they are and show them forgiveness that is in you? And God, for those of us here who do know you, uh, God, will you help us? We need your grace just as much. We need you to remind us of who you are. So Spirit of God, um, will you give us faith? Will you help us to live Uh, like everything that you've accomplished is actually true because we need you. 
Um, so Father, I pray that you would come change us. In Jesus' name, amen.